Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 16, Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6 continues that part of the book that was written in Aramaic. So we find that the focus is on the Gentile captors of Judah. And those captors have now transitioned from the Babylonians to the Media Persian coalition. Excuse me, get out of the frame here for a minute. There we go. Better. To the Media Persian coalition. In other words, it's transitioned from the head of gold to the chest and arms of silver as predicted by Nebuchadnezzar's dream statue made of four different metals. Now the first media Persian king was Darius, Dariavesh. And as we discovered last week, it appears that he was appointed into his position by, uh, as a king by someone who had higher authority. And all paths point to that person as Cyrus II, also known as Cyrus the Great. Now there's a couple of important points to understand. First is that the Medes and the Persians had for some years become more than allies. They were separate kingdoms, but they cooperated closely together in their imperial aspirations. In fact, we find that the last few generations of the line of Median kings, which was Darius's royal line, shared a common patriarch with the last few generations of the line of Persian kings, Cyrus's royal line. And that patriarch was a fellow named Cispus. This ancestral tie is no doubt the basis for this unusually tight relationship between the Medes and the Persians. And second is that every record discovered, whether it's Babylonian, Persian, Median, Greek, chronicles the the fall of of, of Babylon into the hands of, of the Medes and Persians was led by Cyrus. He's given credit. For the, for the conquest. So it seems clear that for whatever his political purpose, Cyrus appointed a member of the Median royal family to be the king over the former Babylonian empire. It's also important to understand that when Cyrus conquered Babylon, it essentially joined together the former Babylonian empire with the kingdom of Media and the kingdom of Persia. And that wound up forming an even more expansive empire. However, there is no indication that Darius was king over this gigantic new combined empire. Rather, it seems that he was king only over the portion that used to be the Babylonian empire. The kingdoms of Media and Persia apparently were not included under his rule. Rather, it seems that Cyrus 
controlled those two kingdoms personally as well as the newly formed empire in its totality. So even though Darius was given the title of king, he functioned a lot like Joseph did when he was the vizier of Egypt under Pharaoh. Thus, while Darius had a great deal of autonomy, in the end, he was still under and beholden to Cyrus. And Dariavesh, Darius, began his career of king, uh, as he began his career as a king, he decided to set up the government of his portion of the empire by dividing it up into 120 districts, each of them controlled by an administrator, the administrator that our Bible, complete Jewish Bibles call a viceroy. And these 120 administrators were divided into three groups. And each of these groups reported to one of the three chiefs who then reported to Darius. Daniel was appointed as one of those three chiefs. However, Daniel was so skilled in his job and his reputation was so impeccable that Darius let it be known that he was considering making Daniel the chief of chiefs. Essentially making him second in command to King Darius. This didn't settle well with the other two chiefs and some member, some number of their royal, uh, loyal uh, viceroys. So they decided that they had to discredit Daniel. However, since Daniel was the epitome of administrative and moral perfection, they couldn't find the slightest cause to bring complaint against him. So they did something clever. They convinced the king to sign into law an empire-wide decree that Daniel couldn't possibly obey. So let's reread a portion of Daniel 6. And if you have a complete Jewish Bible, that's on page 1107. Eleven oh seven. We're going to start reading uh, Daniel six at verse six, going to the end. Then these men said, "We're not going to find any cause for complaint against this Daniel unless we can find something against him in regard to the law of his God." So these chiefs and viceroys descended on the king and said to him, "King Dariavesh, live forever." All the kings, all the chiefs of the kingdom, along with the prefects, viceroys, advisors, and governors have met. We've agreed that the king should issue a decree putting in force the following law. Whoever makes a request of any god or man during the next 30 days, except of you, your majesty, is to be thrown into the lion pit. Now, your majesty, issue this decree over your signature so that it cannot be revoked as required by the law of the Medes and Persians, which is itself irrevocable. So King Daryavesh signed the document and the decree became law. On learning that the document had been signed, Daniel went home. The windows of his upstairs room were open in the direction of Yerushalayim. And there he kneeled down three times a day and prayed, giving thanks before his God just as he had been doing before. 
Then these men descended on Daniel, found him making requests and pleading before his God. So they went in to remind the king of his royal decree, didn't you sign a law prohibiting anyone from making requests of any God or man within 30 days except yourself, your majesty, on pain of being thrown into the lion pit? The king answered, yes, that is true, as required by the law of the Medes and Persians, which is itself irrevocable. They replied to the king, that Daniel, one of the exiles from Judah, respects neither you, your majesty, nor the decree you signed. Instead, he continues praying three times a day. And when the king heard this report, he was very upset. He determined to save Daniel, and he worked until sunset to find a way to rescue him. But these men descended on the king and said to him, Remember your majesty that it is a law of the Medians and Persians that no decree or edict once issued by the king can be revoked. So the king gave the order. And they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion pit. And the king said to Daniel, Your God, whom you are always serving, will save you. A stone was brought to, the, to block the opening of the pit and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords so that nothing concerning Daniel could be changed. Then the king returned to his palace. He spent the night fasting, refusing to be entertained as sleep eluded him. Early in the morning, the king got up. He hurried to the lion pit. And on approaching the pit where Daniel was, the king cried in a pained voice to Daniel, Daniel! Servant of the living God, has your God, whom you're always serving, been able to save you from the lions? Daniel answered the king, May the king live forever. My God sent his angel to shut the lions' mouths so they haven't hurt me. This is because before him I was found innocent, and also I've done no harm to you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed. He ordered Daniel taken up from the pit. So Daniel was taken up from the pit, and he was found to be completely unharmed because he had trusted in his God. Then the king gave an order. They brought those men who had accused Daniel and they threw them into the lion pit. Them, their children, their wives. And before they even reached the bottom of the pit, the lions had them in their control and broke all of their bones to pieces. King Daryavesh wrote all the people, nations, languages living anywhere on earth. Shalom Rav, abundant peace. I herewith issue a decree that everywhere in my kingdom people are to tremble, be in awe of the God of Daniel, for he is the living God. He endures forever. His kingdom will never be destroyed. His rulership will last till the end. He saves, rescues, does signs and wonders, both in heaven and on earth. He delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius, also during the reign of Koresh, Cyrus, the Persian. Verse 6 says that the means to deposing Daniel will be to force him to do something that conflicts with the law that they want the king to sign. Because it will then also conflict with the law of Daniel's God. And when he does what he know what they know he's going to do, which is to obey the law of his God over the law of the king, they'll have to they'll have finally have that cause to get rid of him. What law of Daniel's God are they talking about? It's obvious, the law of Moses, the Torah law. Now we shouldn't think that these chiefs knew much of anything about the law of Moses. 
Rather, this is meant in the sense that all God's systems have their own unique set of laws and they were well aware that perhaps the most unique, the most visible law among the Jews was that they had only one God to worship. And that God didn't allow the worship of any other gods. This reality was especially highlighted in Nebuchadnezzar's era when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow down to that golden statue and they wound up in the fiery furnace because of it. But the point I want to make for the moment is that in the Bible, when the term the law is applied to the Hebrew people or in a Hebrew context, it's only ever speaking about one thing. The law of Moses. The Torah. And the law that they want to be applied throughout the former Babylonian Empire is that no one is to make a request of any god or man for a full lunar cycle. 30 days, one month. What this is referring to is prayer. No one was to bring their prayer directly to their gods or through any holy man who represented their gods. Why the king went along with this is difficult to say. What could possibly have been a legitimate purpose for this new temporary law? After all, while his chiefs did it to try and get rid of Daniel, the story confirms that King Darius had much affection and respect for Daniel and knew that he was loyal. So there must have been some logical pretext for their request that he found reasonable, but none's recorded for us. On the other hand, from a cultural standpoint, there indeed was logic to what these conspirators suggested. In the ancient Middle East, a king was seen as the earthly representative, if not the actual embodiment, of that nation's gods. So the idea is that for 30 days, Darius will be the sole earthly representative of the gods who could be approached by anyone in the empire for any reason. Perhaps the idea was to mimic what Nebuchadnezzar did when he ordered that everyone in the empire was to bow down to that golden statue or risk being thrown into the furnace. That edict was meant as a means for all of his subjects, all of Nebuchadnezzar's subjects, to declare allegiance to the Babylonian empire while making it clear that despite the many kingdoms and many nations that formed his empire, having their own unique set of gods, Nebuchadnezzar overrode them all. Thus it was not that anyone's gods were to be renounced, they weren't even to be disrespected. And this was not a law strictly pointed at the Jews. Everybody was to follow it. But it did affect the Jews the most because the Torah law didn't permit their worshiping or accepting any other god than Yehovah, even though in practice we know they did so regularly. The Gentile people of that era, well, they didn't have any problem accepting everyone else's gods right along with their own. But one of the subtleties of this passage is in verse 9. When these chiefs want the king to sign his name to the decree, 
And this is because, according to the Median Persian law, when the king signed a decree as opposed to merely orally declaring it, the law became irrevocable, written in stone. We find this same situation regarding the Jewish Esther as she was still residing in Persia. Listen to Esther 119. If it pleases the king, let a royal order to go out from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it can't be altered. That Vashti is to never again come before King Asuerus and let the king give her royal petition, uh, a position to another who's better than she. Verse 11 says that Daniel heard of the law. He went home. And he promptly ignored it. He did what he normally did. He prayed to the God of Israel three times per day near a window that faced Jerusalem. Now we're not to take from this that Daniel tried to make a spectacle of himself or tried to draw attention. He wasn't trying to make a point. He sure wasn't trying to become a martyr. He was inside of his own home doing his usual ritual in the same manner and same place and of course he could be seen from the outside and these conspiring chiefs knew this his windows were but openings in stone walls of buildings and by the way it's from this passage that the Hebrew tradition was formed that wherever possible synagogues around the world are to be constructed so that they face Jerusalem This is yet another proof in itself that the book of Daniel is not only valid and truthful because the Jews have memorialized Daniel praying towards Jerusalem in their religious thought and in their architecture. And this tradition was established before Yeshua's day, only a century or so after the liberal Bible critics claim that this fictitious book was written. Would the Jewish people do that if they well knew or even suspected that Daniel was a fraud? The Jewish people themselves would obviously have known whether this was a new book or an older book. And of course they would have known if it referred to Antiochus Epiphanes. That's what liberal Bible critics says it does. Or to the Jews' time in Babylon, as the book itself purports. So the idea that this was a late writing from the era of the Maccabees, about 165 B.C., becomes further exposed as the dishonest product of a secular, humanist, enlightenment agenda as we carefully examine each point. Well, verse 12 tells us that, of course, the co-conspirators hung around outside Daniel's window, then they finally spotted him praying. And they immediately ran off to the king, reminding him that he had signed an irrevocable law that prohibited such a thing as praying for 30 days. Darius confirmed that the law couldn't be rescinded, couldn't be changed. And he was downhearted to learn that the violator they brought to him was none other than Daniel. Now let's pause to consider an aspect of this story that shouldn't go unnoticed. 
There's little other way to look at what Daniel did but as rebellious even though a pious act of civil disobedience. He knew of the decree. He had a clear choice. Obey God's law or obey the government law. Doing both at the same time was impossible. Here we encounter a conundrum that the rabbis and sages have always wrestled with. And the New Testament chronicles how various Jewish factions dealt with trying to square God's law with Roman law. So I think the best way to put Daniel's response to the king's edict into perspective is to equate it with modern day application. The church has had an equally hard time with the matter of civil obedience, civil disobedience of believers, especially since we hear in the book of Romans an unmistakable call to obey our human government. In Romans 13, 1 through 7, we hear this. Everyone is to obey the governing authorities, for there is no authority that's not from God. And the existing authorities have been placed where they are by God. Therefore, for whoever resists the authorities is resisting what God has instituted. Those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are no terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you like to be unafraid of the person in authority? Then simply do what's good. You'll win his approval. For he is God's servant. He's there for your benefit. But if what you do is wrong, be afraid. Because he's not for, it's not for nothing that he holds the power of the sword. For he is God's servant. There is an avenger to punish wrongdoers. Another reason to obey besides fear of punishment is for the sake of conscience. This is why you pay taxes. For the authorities are God's public officials, constantly attending to these duties. Pay everyone what he's owed. If you owe the tax collector, pay your taxes. If you owe the revenue collector, pay your revenue. If you owe someone respect, pay him respect. If you owe someone honor, pay him honor. Then, there's this from Christ in the book of Mark. Mark 12. 12 through 17. They set about to arrest him, for they recognized that he had told the parable with reference to themselves, but they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. Next they sent some paroshim, some Pharisees, and some member of Herod's party to him in order to trap him with a shelah. They came and said to him, Rabbi, we know that since you tell the truth and you're not concerned about what people think about you, since you pay no attention to a person's status but really teach what God's way is, does the Torah say that taxes are to be paid to the Roman emperor or not? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why are you trying to trap me? Bring a denarius so that I can look at it. They brought one. And he asked them, whose name and picture are these? The emperors, they replied. Yeshua said, then give to the emperor what belongs to the emperor and give to God what belongs to God. And they were amazed at him. So, what are believers to do? When our government makes a law that directly contradicts God's law. 
some denominations don't have too much of a problem with that. Since they claim that the New Testament says that under every circumstances we're to follow our civil, our local civil law and God's law takes a back seat to it. That reasoning was used in Nazi Germany as scores of thousands of Jews in hiding were turned in by Christians for eventual extermination so that these believers could be obedient to what they saw as a biblical directive to obey the law of the land no matter how unreasonable it might be. Therefore, especially as applies to these last few years, if the law of the land is for gay people to be married, the church should embrace that law and perform the ceremony. If the law of the land is abortion on demand, then the church should respect it, not counsel against it or question its morality. If the law of the land is that there can be no employment discrimination towards homosexuals or transgender people, then the church is as equally obligated as secular employees to hire and include those folks at every level of ministry. Canada has taken it so far as to make it illegal for pastors even inside the closed doors of their churches to teach their congregations that God is against immoral sex. To speak about homosexuality, to speak against it, is called hate. In fact, when I was in Canada a couple of years ago, there was a notorious case against a pastor for doing just that. He had preached a sermon against homosexuality, calling it perverse in God's eyes. It was reported to the police and he was arrested as a criminal. After almost 90 days of incarceration, he was finally released by agreeing never to do it again and attending a tolerance school. Now, most any believer in America, over about 50 years old, looks around today and feels that it's getting harder and harder to recognize our nation. Without getting into detail, we have ever-escalating attacks against the sovereignty of the church and against the traditional family. And a government that seeks to take whatever God calls evil and make it good, and whatever God calls good and make it evil. How ought we to respond? Do we respond at all? Should it only be in private prayer? Did Christ and Paul intend for us to meekly submit to government laws that are at times explicitly in opposition to God and to His laws? Well, if that's the case, then Daniel was being legalistic and he was self-righteously wrong in his actions. Should he have simply stopped praying to Jehovah for that month in obedience to King Darius? Or has the way believers are to respond today to such a challenge fundamentally changed? It's different now since the advent of Yeshua. Therefore, Daniel, what he did, has no relevance to us. Now, these are tough questions. But I believe the issue has been made overly complex and confused. Not because the answer is unclear, but
But because whether Jewish or Christian, our religious doctrines and traditions have muddied the water. The Old and New Testaments essentially direct us to divide away the moral issues of divinely defined right and wrong from financial and fairness issues that are all about like and dislike. Put it another way. There is a clear dividing line between moral choice and personal preference. However, because much of the institutional church has claimed, wrongly, that God's Torah laws that carefully define sin and morality are dead and gone for Christians, trying to apply God's morality in our time has become a matter of opinion and it's all about shades of gray. In fact, some liberal church doctrine essentially sees it that each and every believer is a separate container of the Holy Spirit, so then right and wrong, good and evil, sin and obedience, even what a scripture passage means is divinely customized. It's individualized, if not unique, for each and every Christian. And if whatever cultural definition of love is invoked in every case, if that situation is brought up, everything's about love, well, all bets are off. However, setting that rather dubious and convoluted argument aside for the moment, if we believers can just once again accept the entire biblical truth taken from this holy writ itself, along with the ongoing relevance and authority of God's laws and commandments for our modern lives, now we have again a ready and crystal clear definition of what morality is and what it is not in God's eyes. The remaining issues concerning the matter of obedience to our government then amounts to some combination of personal preferences, personal views of fairness, and how much of our money and time we agree to cede to our government. Let's take that one step further. In America, I think the hot debates in 2013 are the matters of immigration policy and health care. From a biblical perspective, those two matters fall under preferences, fairness, and finance. And despite our enormous philosophical and political differences on these issues, sin, evil, and wrongdoing from the divine perspective aren't at the core of those choices and options. Taxation is front and center for the citizens, I think, of every nation. Likely it always will be. But despite all of the emotion involved... This is mostly about preference, fairness, and finance, and not morality. I'm confident that both the Old Testament and New Testament make it clear that it is the non-moral issues that are being contemplated when it comes to believers obeying our human governments. The non-moral issues. Therefore, if our government demands a huge portion of our income as taxes, God would have us pay it, no matter how painful. 
if our government enacted a law to allow non-citizens to vote, for non-citizens to have free public education, free health care, etc., then we ought to obey it, no matter how unfair we might find such a thing. At least in America, we have an opportunity to elect people to change those laws. But until that happens, we obey those laws. But what about the moral issues? Homosexuality, marriage, adultery, abortion. What about contraception for our daughters, given without parental permission in our public schools? What about the so-called morning-after pill that's now available to any aged girl without a prescription and the seller being legally bound to keep the transaction secret from that girl's parents? Sex education forced upon our elementary students that gives a secular humanist viewpoint only, which inevitably leads to promiscuity and normalizes some types of sexual immorality. Well, Christians like to say... WWJD, what would Jesus do? But in our study of Daniel, we should also ask, WWDD, what would Daniel do? I think the answer is obvious. Daniel, and I also have no doubt Yeshua, would disobey the law of the land if what was deemed what was demanded was immoral. And it was a direct trespass against the Lord. And then accept the unhappy consequences if need be. And that is exactly what Daniel did. When he continued to pray to the Lord knowing that a gruesome death was the promised outcome of doing that. It is what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did when they refused to declare allegiance to the one world government and to its gods. And by the way, this is going to be expected of believers, especially when the Antichrist reveals himself. He blasphemes and declares himself to be God and he orders every manner of immoral and unclean thing to be followed and obeyed. Or is that what you're going to do? Revelation tells us there will be millions of believing martyrs who commit civil disobedience against this one world government and they accept the deadly consequences. Brothers and sisters, the reality is that our lot as believers, the price we pay to be saved is to obey God and let the chips fall where they may. That is what taking up the cross and following Christ means. The cross is not a pleasant or a lovely thing. It's an execution stake. The cross is not a front row seat to a life of comfort and ease and fitting in. So we should not expect an easy life as a result of our trust in Yeshua. Now, should we go looking for trouble or for martyrdom? Of course not. We should all seek peaceful lives to 
to, to live harmoniously with our neighbors and communities wherever it's possible. But when a government decides, as Germany did recently, that circumcision, for instance, is now deemed mutilation, so it's illegal in all of its forms, such a thing cannot be allowed to stand, nor can it be obeyed, because its intent is obvious. Nor will we at Seed of Abraham Ministries ever stop preaching and teaching God's Word concerning all forms of immoral sex, abortion, the sacred rights and duties of families to make moral decisions concerning our minor children. And that we will never allow our Judeo-Christian faith to be intruded upon and suffer dilution by pagan, Muslim, Wiccan, or any other faith system because in our government's eyes it's needed for tolerance's sake. Whatever happens as a result of that position happens. And I hope that is an attitude that will permeate the thoughts and the lives of all who are listening to this message because day by day the government intrusion into our faith becomes deeper and wider. And biblical prophecy says it's going to get worse as we get nearer to the return of our King and Messiah. We have choices to make, just as Daniel did. And verse 17 shows that the political pressure upon King Darius was more than he could stand up against. And so convinced that Daniel had indeed violated this new law, he reluctantly ordered that Daniel suffer the consequences that the law demanded, death by being torn to piece, pieces by lions. <clears throat> now we get few details about how this sentence was carried out other than that Daniel was thrown into the lion's den. And then the exit was sealed up with a boulder and the king's seal and that of his chiefs was put upon the boulder so that no one would dare try to rescue him. Now there's been... Much scholarly criticism, doubt, and speculation about this whole lion's den incident. Some have claimed there were no such things as lion's dens constructed for such a purpose in that era. But setting aside such claims, the truth is we have no good idea of what this lion's den looked like. Might it have been a cave? How about a subterranean cavern? Maybe a, an empty water cistern? We just don't know. But the idea is that there was some inescapable place where lions were kept for the sole purpose of painful execution of the condemned. Now verse 19 explains that Darius was most upset at this. He couldn't sleep all night. He couldn't eat. Thus in the morning he hurried to the lion's den in slim hope that somehow Daniel had survived. His voice was full of anxiety when he calls for Daniel to reply if he can, wondering if Daniel's God had been able to deliver him from certain death. Daniel hollers in response to the king, O king, live forever. That he was alive is one thing, but to show such respect to the king in this circumstance was another. And Daniel tells the king that indeed Jehovah has sent an angel 
that angel shut up the lion's mouths and he is thus unharmed. Further, he is innocent in God's eyes. So should be innocent in the king's eyes. How can Daniel claim innocence to the king when he knowingly broke his government's law under his signature? I think this falls right back to our discussion of civil disobedience. Not to unjust laws, but rather to immoral laws. An immoral law is not a legitimate law at all as far as a worshiper of God is concerned. I can come to no other conclusion that in God's eyes, His believers are innocent when we refuse for the reason of righteousness to obey a law of human government that amounts to an obvious and serious trespass against God's moral laws. Now the king, thrilled that he still has his best counselor available to him as Daniel freed from the lion's den. The final words of verse 24 sum up the entire point for the Lord even allowing this matter this matter to go so far. For he, Daniel, had trusted in his God. The Lord used this potentially deadly situation to his own glory. And that is something for us to ponder deeply. <clears throat> when we encounter our own life-threatening situations in our journey. But we're also not to slide right by the miraculous nature by which is transpired. It was a supernatural act of Jehovah, accomplished through the power of a heavenly angel that the lions didn't harm Daniel. The lions weren't killed. They simply didn't attack and eat Daniel, which certainly would have been their natural instincts. This, of course, is another reason that the Bible critical school cites as this story being only legend and myth because for them there are no such things as divine miracles. But now, the just execution of the co-conspirators against Daniel is brought about. Those who insisted on the law, those who brought Daniel before the king for sentence are thrown into the lion's pit. They and all of their families. These same lions that passively sat and laid down while Daniel was in the pit attacked these people and began tearing them apart before they ever even reached the bottom. What a horrible sight that must have been. Yet from a divine perspective, the actual accusers suffered a fate that was just in God's eyes. For it is God's law that those who bear false witness in a capital case are themselves guilty of murder for which the punishment is death. But what about the innocent women and children, the family members who were killed? That's not God's justice, but it is rather standard oriental justice. The idea is not that these family members had committed any crime. Rather it is that by the entire family being destroyed, the criminals' bloodlines are brought to an end. 
his name will now be forgotten. And thus his eternal essence that was thought to live on after death in his descendants would be terminated. This was the worst possible outcome for any human being. We're going to finish up chapter 6, get well into chapter 7 next time.